0: If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and grab it and turn with me uh, to Ephesians chapter 5. That's where we're going to be picking it up here today, picking up back in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We, we kind of took a break during Christmas season and, and now, we're, now we're back in this letter. Uh, this letter to the church there in Ephesus, to the believers in that place, uh, just like us. And, and I would just ask you, we're, we're going to kind of dive in, so would you just stand with me right now as, as we look together uh, to God and His Word. We're, we're in Ephesians chapter 5, um, and we're going to pick it up right there in verse 22 and go through verse 33. Wives, and the, the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just confessed it. We we sang it out loud, every single one of us. We we confess that we need you. Um, and we do. I mean, we need you right now. We need you to speak to us that we might hear you, that we might that we might see you, that we might be present with you. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us in our faith today as we hear your word. I pray that for me right now, that you would strengthen me and my faith. Lord, be with us now. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Over the next couple weeks, um, we're going to be we're gonna be looking at this passage. So we're gonna take two weeks. Uh, this is the longest passage in the New Testament that speaks specifically to marriage. And um, we're looking at it through, we're gonna look at it through the twin lenses of Christ-like submission and, and Christ-like authority. It, it's through those two filters or those two lenses uh, that we that we want to see God's word. Um, and, and what we're going to see is that there are some very clear instructions. Given to us as as the church, right? And, and the first thing this does, and especially, let me say this, and especially a passage like this one, a passage that has become charged with all sorts of sort of cultural insensitivity, is it, what a passage like this does. Is it really calls into question what it is that we believe about the Bible? right It sort of forces us to deal with what we really believe about what we call the Word of God, all right It, it, it forces us to it's going to force us to deal with that because because what we claim here at, at this church and in this denomination that we're a part of is we claim that we are Bible people. We say that fairly often. Uh, Bernie prayed that in his prayer today. We are Bible people here. We make the claim that the Bible is the Word of the God, of, of God as, as given in the original languages. It's the inerrant and infallible, God-breathed, Spirit-inspired, Spirit-empowered Word of the living God. That's what we say unapologetically, and we say it frequently here at Rivercrest. It's, it's 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and that it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So what I'm telling you, regardless of who published it, whether it was Reformation Trust or Crossway or, or whoever's got the, their name on the binding of that Bible, what I'm telling you right now is what's sitting in your lap or you're holding in your hand is not just an ordinary thing. Like, it's different. It's unique. And, and some have argued uh, that Paul is only that he's only talking about the Old Testament in this passage. But but Peter really throws a curveball at that argument um, in his second letter, in, in the second letter of Peter, where he equates the writings of Paul. So think about that. Peter says that what Paul writes is Scripture. He, he says it there, and I think that we can appreciate this. He says, second, it's 2 second Peter 3.15, he says, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. Now, I've always loved and appreciated that, Paul, uh, sorry, that Peter just said that some of the things that Paul writes are hard to understand. it It gives me comfort that the Bible says that the Bible is hard to understand. Anybody relate to that? Some of you are like, yeah, I'm on day seven or whatever of my Bible reading plan. I'm already lost. All right? I get that. I just love that the Bible says that sometimes the Bible is hard to understand. But we need to understand and make sure that we don't hear something there that Peter isn't saying. Okay? He didn't say that Paul is impossible to understand. He said some things in them are hard to understand. And in some cases, in some cases, it's because they are deep and complex theological truths. Like, Paul gets into that. And if we believe in an infinite and an all-powerful God, it just makes sense that understanding Him, even the the best and the brightest minds amongst us, understanding an infinite God could be difficult. But, but there's another thing that makes some things in Paul's letters hard to understand. And I think this is where most of us actually land. And it's, it's very simply, we don't want to understand. Like that's another way that things are hard to understand, is when we don't want to understand. Like the other morning uh, when, when, uh, when Tucker's alarm clock was blaring. Um, He actually had two alarms going off. You can imagine this is our house, all right? There's two alarms going off, and he has the volume extremely high on both of them. So I think Alexa's over here yelling at him, verbally saying, hey, man, you told me to wake you up. And then he's got a a music thing waking him up. He's got his sister, all right, yelling at him from across the, the house. Tucker shut it off. by this it's so peaceful in our house in the morning. It's just like waking up, and it's like ethereal and amazing. No. Um, sister's yelling him in the other room to shut it off, and my boy just kept right on sleeping. All right. Just power. It's basically his, his superpower as a middle schooler.) Um, like, he knew what the alarm meant, right? He just didn't want to embrace it in that moment. I think that's sometimes how we are with the Bible, and per- perhaps that's where Ephesians 5 will find us here today. It's not that it's complicated. It's really not. It's, it's, not, it's not highly complex. It's actually, I mean, you could argue this, this passage is remarkably straightforward. It's just that we don't want to either... Either from our own broken identities or because of the cultural influence around us. Maybe it's a combination of both. But it's hard to understand because we just don't want to embrace what it says. There's that little voice in our world and in our own heart still asking, Did God actually say? You know? It's the same tactic the evil one has used since the very beginning of time in human history. And so we need to come to terms with what we believe about Scripture. Like We need to, as a people, come to terms with what we really believe about God's Word. And here's the other thing we need to recognize as we enter into this part of Ephesians chapter 5. And, and this is where we're really going to focus today. But we need to come to terms with, with what it is that we really believe about love. Like I, and I know that we talk about love a lot and we say the word love a lot. But we really need to come to terms with what we actually believe about love. Because ultimately, ultimately... That's what this passage is about. And today, we're, we're, we're focusing on what we're going to call Christ-like authority. We're starting with the husbands first. We're, we're going to begin, we're focusing on the role of the husband in Marriage and so for some of us it's it's going to be a call to reformation like that's that's what this passage is going to be It's going to be a call to to change we're going to be called to change in how we are and, and how we approach and how we participate in our marriages today it'll be a call for reformation for for some of us and then for some of us right from the rest of us it's going to be a call not for reformation but for preparation a call to to prepare to live and love in marriage as God intends for us, so that he well so ultimately so that he gets the glory and so that we are able to truly enjoy what He has given to us and so today we're focusing here on that that, that husband's role in Christian marriage. next week we'll look specifically at the wife. And then, don't, don't think you're left out. The next week we're doing Kids and Parents, so it's going to be awesome, right? It's, it's this little mini-series here looking at the Christian family as they live on mission for the glory of God and the good of others as, as, and as we ultimately reflect Christ, hopefully, in all that we do. And the first thing we see here is that the love of Christ, the love of Christ is a sacrificing love. Now, I want you to look back at verse 25 with me. Look at verse twenty five. We read, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now now a lot of times this passage takes some heat because of the fact that the wives are called to submit to their husband. That's really where the where the rub comes in our in our culture today. And and many find that sort of language to be offensive. Like I've had people, I was telling the worship team before, I've had someone as we were preparing for, uh, for a wedding service and I was talking sort of like outlining the passage I was going to use to talk about it. I said, yeah, so I use that Ephesians 5 passage a little bit and the lady just looked straight at me dead in the face and said, I hate that passage. I was like, this is going to be awkward. Um because your wedding's like two weeks from now and I have no plans to change. Are you firing me or are we going to do this? And, uh, and so we spent the next, Lori can attest to that, she was actually there in the room, it was awkward for all of us. We spent the next like two hours sitting in our living room unpacking this passage from a biblical standpoint. And by the end of it, she was like, yeah, you need to use that passage. And I was like, that's good that we agree. Because um, you were going to be real disappointed on your wedding day. Anyway, um, this passage sort of strikes against our preferences and our prejudices. And we're going to deal with that that next week. But 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 it's important that we understand that the husband here, he isn't called to rule his wife. You notice that? Like he isn't called to dominate his wife. The husband isn't called to subdue his wife. You don't see that. Now that was common in the time that this letter is being written. In fact, that was very normative in the world of the Ephesians. That was the husband's role. That was the man's role within that society. That was ordinary life. Like a woman had very, very little real power. She, she was limited both in her position in the community and in her capacity to provide for herself. There was this very unhealthy imbalance perpetuated in the pagan culture. And, and not to let the religious people off the, off the hook, perpetuated in the church of that time too. And so when Paul says, "Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her," that was a counter-cultural calling on Christian husbands. It was a call to this was a call to swimming against the flow of the current around them, the current around us today. The call to sacrificing love is a call to the way of the cross. Uh, I love the way Tony Marita. Describes this. He 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 has the statement that Christian, or sorry, Christ like love is a Golgotha love. That Christ like love is a Golgotha love. You see, Golgotha is the place of the cross. It's the place that Golgotha is the place where Jesus was. If you can imagine this, and, and we have cleaned it up way too much. We, we do not want to break against people's sensibilities. We have cleaned up the cross. We've sort of neutered the cross. So when you see a picture of Jesus sort of hanging on the cross with a little strip of blood on his side, a little bit of blood on his, on his brow, and, and you think, yeah, there he is. I promise you that is not what it looked like. And it is an embarrassing reality when the cross comes into true view. The, the cross is where Jesus was stripped naked in front of everyone. The loincloth is there for you. It wasn't there for him. That didn't exist in real time. The cross was about total embarrassment. So he's stripped naked, right? The cross is where he was, where they laid him down, his scourged back, ripped to shreds. They were professionals at destroying a human body without killing it. Where they were scourged and laid on a rough piece of timber. The cross is the place where nails were driven through his hands and through his feet. And do not think about hitting your thumb with a hammer in the garage trying to build a birdhouse with your dad. That is not the type of nail we're talking about. The cross is the place where that crown of thorns pierced deeper and deeper into his head as he asphyxiated and strained and struggled for any semblance of a fleeting breath. The cross is the place where he genuinely, really, and truly bled and died. And here's what the Bible says, that he did this because of the great love with which he loved us. In his holy and perfect obedience to the will of the Father, he was pierced for our transgressions. That's how Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. For you men, I want you to hear this. (laughs) Please look right at me. For us, marriage is a call to come and die. That's what marriage is for us. It's a call to lay aside your rights. It's a call to give up your privileges and to let go of your preferences. But I just want to go play golf. But I'm, I'm, you go to bed, I'm going to play another four hours of video games. Some of y'all are looking at people, that is messed up. <laughs> Isn't, I, I'm talking about every, don't do that, don't be like, you see that? Wives, it is not time to play Holy Spirit right now, okay? (laughs) I just want to watch the game. You got the kids, I'm on this. I work hard, I just want to sit here on this couch. That's the one that kills me. I want to make a fortune so I can provide for you. That's the way that one's been twisted recently. The reason I don't have any time, energy to give to you is because I'm working so hard to provide the life of comfort for you. Listen, the husband does bear a responsibility, a biblical responsibility, to provide for the family in these temporal things. But don't you dare for a second buy into the lie that an extravagant and affluent life is more important than the care of your wife's soul. We're called to follow the example of Jesus. We're called to to follow the example of the one who emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Marriage is not a call to be served, but to serve. You see, Jesus didn't give His life as a ransom for many, so that you could have all the worldly comforts. It was so that you could be saved from your sin. So, in that way, in that way, not only is the love of Christ a sacrificing love, like what we see at the cross, but the love of Christ is also a sanctifying love. I want you to look at verse twenty-six with me. It says that Jesus gave himself up for her. That's his bride. Uh, That's the church. And here's what 26 says. That he might sanctify her, having been cleansed by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. You know, there's a moment. There's a moment that happens in every single wedding right after all of the people are in place the whole the whole processional bridesmaids groomsmen they've all they've all found their spot there's this slight pause and, and then usually usually there's a little shift in or or, or a full out change in the music like sometimes it's a longer moment like i've been in that moment a couple of times where like it kind of felt like uh oh like i hope i hope she's coming <laughs> i mean Especially some of these outdoor wedding venues. Like, it can be a trek for the bride to get out of the house, kind of down to the yard. Not lying, the last wedding we had, me and the groom had time to take some extra breaths before she came around the corner. It was like, ah, come on now. All right. But there's this moment. And no two weddings are exactly the same. So, so we know that. But in each of them, there's this moment when the bride appears. Maybe she comes out from, maybe the door's open at the back of the sanctuary. Or maybe she comes out from behind the bush she's hiding out of, or whatever, or comes out of the house, whatever it may be. But she appears. And when she appears, she looks beautiful. Like She's prepared herself for this moment. Probably had some help. Probably had some people help her along the way. Because, because this is a big moment in life. And the groom is waiting. Right, he's there. He's 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 got tears in his eyes. His heart's pumping a little faster. His Apple Watch is like, "Are you okay?" You know that type of that type of a thing. The music's playing. I mean, that's a powerful. That is a powerful, powerful moment. And what's happening, all right, in that moment, if you, can, if you can strip away all the ceremony, if you can strip away all the crowd, if you can strip away all of the, all, all the everything, right, and just boil it down to what is happening in that very moment, just that little moment. And really, it's a small moment in the grand scheme of things, but it's a big moment in your life. If you can strip everything away, what's happening in that moment is they are giving us a picture, however flawed and imperfect it may be, of what Paul is talking about right here here in Ephesians 5. You see, God's ultimate goal for you, for you, is not that you would just be saved from your sins, as beautiful as that is. Like as amazing as that is. No, his ultimate goal and his ultimate purpose for you is that you would be made holy and without blemish. That's God's goal for you. That you would be holy and without blemish, And this isn't just for the wives in the room. It's for all of us, right? Paul says it so succinctly over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 where he writes, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. This is the will of God, your sanctification. It's a short verse. What does God want from me? He wants you to be sanctified. That's what he wants. And you go, oh, well, here's the problem. Like, what does that even mean? Well, I love the way our Shorter Catechism answers the question of what is sanctification. We were meeting with our Rivercrest Essentials group yesterday morning. We got to this part in sanctification. I was so proud that I was able to quote it. Just like Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism says, they were not as impressed as I thought they should be. All right, I just want to let you know they weren't. But here's what it says to the question of what is sanctification, that sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God, are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. I realize that's a mouthful, but here's what it is. It's being made less and less like ourselves and being made more and more like Jesus. That's what sanctification is. That's God's purpose for you. That's his desire For you in his commentary on this passage, Ian Hamilton makes the statement that that the salvation accomplished by Christ is not a bare rescue from the coming wrath. He says, Because faith takes a sinner into Christ, salvation, at its fullest sense, is all about being transformed into his likeness. This is the sanctifying love of Christ for us. Like it doesn't just see us, his love doesn't just pity us. It doesn't just extract us from the, from the danger and the depravity of sin. I, I remember one time I, I encountered a, one of my, uh, when I was in construction, we, we, I don't know why this was, we had to go to the post office every day. Maybe that's just a normal thing. I had to go to the post office in Eau Claire every single day to get the mail. And I would pull into the same spot, because I'm a creature of habit, pull into the same spot, run in and out as fast as I could, get the mail. But this one day I pulled in and I saw a, a, a it was clearly a blind man walking across the Parking lot, and and I saw him, and I and I felt so sad for this man. Like in that moment, i was having one of those moments. Just saw him, noticed him, felt sadness for him. That that something that is so easy and so routine and so simple for me, something going to the post office to get mail for him is such an arduous, such a straining, such a such a difficult task. And so I I, I walked over and asked if he needed help, and he said, Yeah, that'd be great. And I I walked him to the desk and helped him uh, get his money out of his wallet and give it to the postal worker. And, and he thanked me, and I said this. Here's what I said, feeling very, very good about myself. I said He said, thank you, and I said, you're welcome. Have a good day, and turned to walk. And as, as right as I was turning, he said, Whoa, wait, 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 wait. You, I need you to get me back where you found me. Because the moment I started leading him, he stopped counting steps. He stopped using his stick to feel for the different hurdles in the way. You know, a blind person has to memorize their environment in a totally different way than we do. You know, Wait just a minute, man. You've got to get me back where you found me. You see, I could feel sympathy for him. And I could take him by the hand and get him to the desk. I could even get him back to where I found him. And for so many of us, I think that's the way we tend to think about salvation. It's, it's that Jesus sees us in our sins. It's that Jesus feels pity on us. That Jesus even extracts us from the danger and, and, and declares us saved. And then he says, this is what Jesus does. He declares us saved and he says, have a good day. And he leaves us where he found us. But the beauty of the gospel is not that Jesus finds us or even that he saves us. But, but here's what it is. It, it, here's the true depth and beauty of the gospel is that he brings us all the way home. You see, he doesn't just point the way. He doesn't go, hey, listen, when you go out of here, 10 steps, turn left, 32 steps, turn right, and you'll be back at your front door. He doesn't do that. Now, he enters into the journey with us. That's the power of Christ. That's the power of the gospel, that Jesus doesn't go, you're clean, go do it. He says, you're clean, I'm with you. He brings us home. He, he doesn't just point the way. He enters into the journey with us, dwelling with us, dwelling in us by his Spirit. Listen, Christian, do you know? Here, here, let me ask you this question. Do you know today that the Spirit of the living God is dwelling in you right now? Maybe you need to think about that for just a second. Like, do you know, do you really know, if you have entrusted Your eternal life to Jesus Christ, saying his sacrifice is paid for my sin, that by grace through faith alone I am welcomed into the family, welcomed into the number, counted among the new creation, sons and daughters of the king. Do you know that if that is true of you, that the spirit of the living God is dwelling with you right now? Like, Do you know that in your pain, do you know that in your frustration, do you know that in your fear, Do you know that in your loss, I promise you this isn't rehearsed. Do you know that in your sorrow, do you know that in your joy, do you know that in your victories, do you know that in your defeats and in your failings, your longing and in your striving and your waiting, do you know that in that, in that, Trying to exercise the patience that God's calling you to. Do you know that he's with you? I badly want you to know that. Do you know that the call to walk as children of light is only possible because... The light of the world is alive inside of you right now that he chooses he moved into your neighborhood, he looked at all the other houses around and he picked your rundown little shack and said, "I'm moving in with that one. Do you know that? He's not far removed. He has not buried his head in the sand. He has not given up on you. he's here. Even now, even in this little ratty warehouse with us, he's here, he's present, and that's not out of duty. He's not here because he just made a vow. He's not here just because of a covenant. He's here because he loves you. I want to ask you this question. I'll point it to the husbands in the room because that's who we're talking to a lot today. I want to ask you this. Is your wife more like Christ Because of the way that you love her. Like if you're single, all right, let's do this. Let's not just do the husband. If you're single or dating in this room, if you're a man and that's your position right now, single, dating, whatever, are the women or even just the people you are around more like Jesus because of how you love and serve them? Are you leading the people around you? Maybe it's the girl you're dating. The woman you're dating, are you leading them in the way of purity and holiness? Of, of, being, of being set apart as a sacred vessel for God's glory? Like these are legitimate diagnostic questions we men need to be asking ourselves. And if you want to know the answer, let me, let me encourage you. If you want to know the real answer, don't just ask that question of yourself. Ask the person sleeping next to you. Ask the person going to dinner with you, is you. Are you made more like Christ by the way that I love you? And then just receive the answer. Wives, your, joy, your, 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 your job there is just to be honest. I want to take it a little bit of a step further and be clear that as that those who have been redeemed as those who've been called out of darkness into His marvelous light, as those who, who were once not a people but now are a people, as those who had once not received mercy but now have received mercy. That, that's all of us. That's every believer in this room. That's every believer in all space and time. Are, are the people in your life more like Christ because of their association with you? Like, are you living as salt and light in your relationships? Or or are you going the way of a consumer you see, there's so many times and maybe this is especially true with men when we approach relationships through here's what we do we approach relationships largely through the lens of social utility we look at at people in terms of what they have to offer us at what they can do for us right how can they improve our situation it's true in our marriages, it's true in our friendships, and unfortunately, and it really pains me to say this, but it's often, often true in our churches. We live with a what can you do for me, or what have you done for me perspective towards, towards the people around us. And, and that's just, quite frankly, not the life of Christ. It's certainly not the love of Christ. This call in Ephesians 5 for husbands, and really for anyone who has ears to hear, is to walk and the newness of born-again life in Christ. It's begin to walk in the way of Jesus for the renewal of all things. We're called as the church to be what some have called an alternative community, to live and move as a new creation body for the glory of our God who saves, and, and, and for the good of others. And Paul truly does connect this to the life of all believers. Look down at verse 32. In verse 32, he says, This mystery is profound. And I'm saying it refers to Christ and who? Husbands? No. I mean, yes, but no. This, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the super faithful among you. This, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to the people who get up on the platform and lead in worship. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it re- refers to the people leading the Bible studies on Wednesdays and Tuesdays or, or whatever day of the week. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to the pastors or the missionaries. That's not what it says. It says, this mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This is the sanctifying love of Christ. It meets us where we are, but it does not leave us there. It brings us all the way home. And this is what freedom in Christ looks like for us in our marriages. Husbands, this is the love that we are called. That we're called, commanded. Called maybe not even strong. the love we're commanded by God to show our wives. Believers, this is the love that the church is called to show to our neighbors. What about the one who doesn't pick up his trash? Yep, that one too. The guy who won't cut his grass? Yep, love that guy too. The one who plays the music too loud? Yep, the one whose car is too loud? Yep, that one too. I'm just going through the list of people right here in my mind. In every wedding message I've ever given, I say something like this. Um, and if you've ever been to a wedding I've done, you've like been to all of them. So outside of changing some names and some personal details, they're pretty similar. But I say something like this to this happy couple, as they're and it's beautiful, right? I mean they're standing there, they're 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 pretty and handsome, whatever, and um they're so happy. I mean it is, it's a happy, joyous thing. And I say something like this I say that today is the easiest day of your marriage. Right? Some of you are like, Yep, he said that to me. It was weird. Yep. Today is the easiest day of your marriage. And then I say something like this because there are going to be times of unfulfilled expectations. That there will be disappointments. That there will be unmet needs. I say you are going to step on one another's toes and if I know there's dancing at the reception it's probably going to happen at that. I often say, I, I bet that we don't get out of the parking lot today before one of you says or does something that makes the other one roll their eyes. The suit and the dress are going into the closet. And there will be days when you see one another in filthy rags. And in those moments, those moments that are inevitable, those moments that will come, you're going to have to choose whether you go the way of the world, whether you go the way of selfish desire, whether you go the way of personal rights and personal comfort, of privilege and preference, or, or, and this is the calling for us, you go the way of Christ. You go the way of the cross. You go the way of self-sacrifice. You go the way of self-denial. Because, see, forgiveness always has a cost. It does. Don't let anybody ever tell you it doesn't. Forgiveness means I'm willing to lose so that there can be peace. Forgiveness says I'm willing to die so that there can be life. And so here's the calling for us. This comes from Colossians chapter 3. To put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. That's what he calls us. He says put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. And then he says this, Paul loves to come back to this. I think because he knows how hard it really is. He beats this drum over and over and over. He says this, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This is the love that we're called to. We are called to Christ-like love. That Christ-like love will manifest itself in Christ-like authority because we will love our spouses. We will love the people around us enough to lead them in love and light towards something better. This love is true. This love is genuine. This love endures because it's not rooted in the temporal realities. It's not rooted in our temporal circumstances. It's not rooted in whatever this day went. It's rooted in the eternal love of Christ. We see that most clearly at the cross. How are you supposed to live and move and have your being in our world today? Look no further than that little hill outside of Jerusalem. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you uh, that you don't give up on people like me. That you don't give up on people like us. That you don't look at us and see disappointment. That you don't look at us and see a waste of time. You don't look at us and see a lost cause. You look at us and see your sons and daughters, who you love beyond words, who you love so much that you are willing to to come to this earth to redeem us out of the mess we've made, that you loved us so much that you were willing to come and, and die for us, not guilty for us, but to take our guilt from us and die for us. Father, I pray that you would help your church to remember who we are in you, That we are a redeemed people. That you bled and died for us. Yeah, help us to walk in that. Help us to walk in that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.